It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade here. Thanks so much for listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show on this special edition, this Black Friday edition on this very weird 2020 year. Uh, this hour is going to be special. Neil Ferguson's going to be with us from the Hoover Institute. He predicted big tech turning on the president in 2020, and boy, did they. Carly Shimkus always is great, gives us the stories we don't get enough of. And P.J. O'Rourke, one of the funniest, deepest thinkers in America today on the conservative side. Here's my interview with Neil Ferguson and what he knew then and why he ended up playing out now. Well, Brian, it's great to be back with you. Uh, four years ago, it seemed pretty obvious that the big tech companies were were more than just shocked by the outcome of the election. Uh, most people who work in Silicon Valley lean left. There are hardly any exceptions to that. Maybe Peter Thiel is one, but he left town uh, some time ago. And so there was obviously going to be a rethink uh, about the way they handled the next election. Uh, we began to see the, the first signs of uh, systematic censorship after the events in Charlottesville. Uh, 2017, uh, when various uh, big names in tech uh, started openly saying that they were going to take down, uh, quote unquote, hate speech. Now, the thing about the category of hate speech uh, is that it can be expanded uh, just about as far as you like. Uh, and uh, what it tends to mean in Silicon Valley is anything uh, that that is right uh, of center uh, uh, now. I don't want to uh, overstate the case. It's not like there's uh, uh, mass censorship of conservative content, but there have been numerous cases, Prager University being a good one, where Prager sued uh, because uh, their their content was being discriminated against. And I, I wasn't in the least surprised when in this election year, Twitter and Facebook uh, ramped up uh, the censorship. Uh, and it, it's actually more than just the New York uh, post story about Hunter Biden. There's in fact a, a great deal of this kind of thing going on this year. Some of it isn't attracting as many headlines, uh, but I think this was always likely to happen, Brian, for one very simple reason. The big tech companies have become the public square. They dominate uh, the way in which people consume news. Really large proportions, especially of young Americans, get their news via Facebook uh, or they or they get it off some other social media site. And this is way too much power for corporations that when you press them say, oh, we're just a technology company. We're just a platform. But they're not. You know, we, we're not publishers. They are publishers. And do you agree that, that it has to be reassessed? Absolutely. And the problem, Brian, is that we're in the process of going down a huge blind alley called antitrust. That is to say, uh, the political class has decided with some notable exceptions, uh, Josh Hawley, for example, to go down the antitrust road as if the real problem is anti-competitive practices by companies uh, like Google. But the real problem is not that. The problem is that these giant network platforms have become the most powerful publishers in the world. And they're governed by mid-1990s legislation, which was drafted when they didn't mostly exist. 
when they were little fledgling enterprises. And, and the key piece of legislation that is really, really up for revision is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is like the catch-22 of the internet, because what it says, uh, Brian, is that if something bad appears in the network platform, like a death threat or terrorist content, well, the, the network platforms just shrug their shoulders and say, nothing to do with us, we're just we're just platforms. Uh, but if they engage in, in censorship, if they deliberately take down content or, yeah. or they label content unsafe, and you say, but what about my First Amendment rights, they reply, oh, well, uh, those don't apply because uh, we're private companies and uh, First Amendment doesn't apply to us. It, it's a wonderful, uh, you know, heads, heads they win, tails you lose situation. And, and it has to be changed. Listen to Ted Cruz. That is a major escalation from silencing individual Americans to now big tech is telling the media we have a veto power on what stories you can report on and what stories the American people can hear. If anyone in the mainstream media had even a shred of integrity, they would be outraged at this. Instead, because they want Donald Trump to, to lose, they will docilely go by by big tech's incredible assertion of censorship power. He, he's right, correct? I mean, this must really outrage you, and it's because Trump's people knew four years ago how valuable Facebook was specifically, and they utilized it. Hillary's people forgot about it. And because of that, the Facebook people and all the Silicon Valley liberals were afraid to show their face in these cocktail parties. They thought they put Trump in power, and they're overcompensating right now. And there's outrage, but it might be futile. Right. I think the key thing to grasp, Brian, is the sheer reach of the big tech companies. Facebook has in the United States 240 million users, 72% of the population. People are spending an average of 75 minutes a day on social media. Large proportions, as I mentioned, especially of younger people, get their news from sites like Facebook. This, as you know, look at your Fox ratings. I mean, this is... This dwarfs what cable TV uh, can do. It dwarfs what traditional media can do. And it means that the public square where our political debate happens is now owned by a handful of West Coast companies, the overwhelming majority uh, of, of whose employees uh, and executives are, are liberals, if not outside, outright woke progressives. And I think this, this is, as you rightly say, uh, for them a cost uh, that they're prepared to incur, the, the heat that they're going to be under, the pressure they're going to be under between now and Election Day, for them will be entirely worth it if the outcome is the blue wave, the landslide Biden victory that they, they fantasize about. And by the way, if that is the result of this election, you can forget meaningful reform of the power of social media. There will, no, there will be no attempt to revisit the issue of Section 230. There will be no attempt to give us First Amendment rights on the internet. There will be an entirely futile antitrust action uh, against uh, some uh, of these big tech companies, which like the antitrust action against Microsoft 20 years ago, will almost certainly end in nothing really changing and these companies not being broken up. It's and, unbelievable. And from the vantage point of the, the California Democrats, who are of course heavily subsidized, funded, by Silicon Valley, uh, this is just a sweet outcome because they want conservative content to be taken down. It suits them very well if it's President Trump's uh, tweets. But now, are, Ferguson, are, uh, if I'm a business warm. person, if I'm a business person, I want the most people possible to use my social media platform.
I don't have a, if I'm a legitimate business person that just wants to grow for my investors and myself, my company, why would you want to alienate half the country? What is so worth it? Is it so worth it to pick the president rather than, and to maybe jeopardize your future profits because of the reclassification? It's so worth it to do all that rather than just maximize profits and, and better your company? Well, Brian, if, if you and I were, were swimming in money, the way the big tech companies are swimming in money, we would regard it as a rounding error uh, if uh, a bunch of, uh, of conservative uh, content producers boycotted our platform. Uh, we, we would just shrug our shoulders the way they shrugged their shoulders when they came under attack from the European uh, Union in recent years. They were fined. Uh, there have been massive fines imposed by the EU uh, on the big tech companies. But if you if you look at the finances of big tech, uh, even these big fines, which look to us absolutely crushing, are a rounding error. So I, I just don't think it worries them in the slightest. What would worry them would, would be or would have been a serious uh, revision of the rules governing their role in our political lives. And I'm afraid to say that Republicans left it way too late. You're you right. and I were talking about this more than two years ago now, and uh, nothing was done. I went to Washington. I was trying to explain uh, to, to Republican legislators uh, what needed to be done before the next election. And really, the answer was, apart from a few minor pieces of legislation on sex trafficking, nothing was done. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we're in this situation. The writing was on the wall four years ago that big tech was far too politically powerful, that it had become the public square and the public square was going to engage uh, in skewed censorship, and we really did not. We did nothing to right. address that. And I, I, in, in that sense, I think conservatives only have them, themselves to blame because they left it until really the the last months of President Trump's first term. Uh, I can still say that uh, before they really got right. serious about Section Two Thirty, and and that right. that I think is the reason we're in this situation. And Neil, just a big question: When we look at what's happening with California and your green movement, and you can't even keep the lights on, when you see this. Uh, this sense of let's keep the wall down and let legal immigrants uh, live off the land and live in our country and almost in- embrace them as they come in. As we see the homeless take over Los Angeles and San Francisco, as we see these uh, pension plans and these blue cities get their budget go uh, go flying into the red, and so many are leaving for Texas and Florida and uh, Tennessee. Do you believe the American people are seeing the difference and are getting away from the slogans and the electioneering and are looking around and making the assessment on what worked best for them? I wish I wish that was happening. I moved uh, to California four years ago from uh, from Harvard to Stanford, and uh, I had not really paid enough attention to the way California was run. I just kind of assumed it was Massachusetts with 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 better weather. Uh, I was shocked to discover the way in which the the Democrats run California. It's become a one-party state. There is almost no uh, way that Republicans can constrain the Democrats in in Sacramento. And wherever you look, uh, it is a a god-awful mess. The most obvious example uh, I can think of are the huge wildfires that we have seen uh, this year, which have been the the worst, really, in in many, many decades. And it's uh, very convenient for Governor Gaffin Newsom to say, this is all because of climate change and therefore 
we must all uh, you know, go by high-speed rail or drive Teslas. But the reality is that these wildfires have happened because Californian Democrats' environmental legislation and regulation makes it almost impossible to do the kind of controlled burns that you need to do to manage yep. the great forests of a very arid state. Uh, and it's a complete uh, piece of nonsense to say that it's rising temperatures that are responsible for this. So I, I think that's just one example of many I could give. I the taxes go inextricably upwards. Uh, the regulations become extraordinarily uh, complex. I, I was shocked to find how much harder it was just to employ people in California compared with uh, Massachusetts. And people are leaving. So the tax base uh, is, is, shrinking. is shrinking. And, and that is going to make the problems even worse. And what's stunning to me is that A, the California Democrats simply do not see the extent to which they are destroying the world's most successful economy, or which they, California has been for right. many decades. Yeah, I got and voters... And voters don't seem to get it either. Otherwise, there would be a Republican revival. And we'd get back to those days when we had Ronald Reagan as governor of California. Oh, gosh, I really yearn for that for Absol that time. Uh, Neil Ferguson, no one says it better than you. I would have interjected, but you're just saying you're, you're nailing it. Just like you nailed it in 2017, you came here, you came on the show and predicted everything to a T. Square in the Tower is the name of the book, Networks, Hierarchies, and the Struggle for Global Power. He's got a great column out now, uh, Article 2, Facebook, Twitter, Google can't be censors of politics. Uh, Neil, thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon, I hope. You bet. Thanks, Brian. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. His mouth to your ears. It's Brian Kilmeade. When you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle. Give a little whistle. Now, why did you play that, uh, Allison? Well, I was told that you were blown away and in shock when you heard Carly just whistling away one day. Oh. <laughs> Carly Shimkus is here, everybody. Oh and, and what happened? You walked into the set, and you were whistling. Yeah. And well, I, I pointed actually, at... Okay, it was kind of an embarrassing moment for me because I was... I thought I was by myself. <laughs> and then I was in the green... We were in the green room. Yeah. I was in the green room because it's so early. There's not a lot of people around. And so I was whistling and making coffee, and then all of a sudden I hear... You whistle? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't like whistling, but I never saw a woman whistle. Okay. Women don't usually whistle. Yeah, it's kind of a habit. I whistle a lot. <laughs> Did that mean yes. you always ha you are happy? I I guess I I guess it's sort of a sign of happiness. It's just it's a habit. But yeah, I was happy in that moment. But yeah. All right, BrianKillMe.com. Tell me if you whistle and tell me if you're a woman. All right. Okay. Let's Let, get a poll going. Let's find out if there's on, even ladies. more to know. <laughs> more to know with Carly Shimkus. I can't get over this one because a day after Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey was uh, grilled in the Senate hearing over allegations of conservative censorship, Twitter temporarily suspends Mark Morgan's Twitter account, Customs Border Protection Commissioner. This is the tweet that got him suspended. He said, it's a fact walls work. Every mile helps us stop gang members, murderers, sexual predators, and drugs from entering our country. Fact. 
However, Twitter said that that violates their hateful conduct policy. They later reversed that decision, but I am sure that Ted Cruz would love to call him back into another Senate trial to it's explain that It's unacceptable. It's crazy. And they said, no, we, it's upstanded. We're going to leave it. And then finally they said, oops, we made a mistake. They don't care. They're arrogant. They just want to squelch anything positive for Trump. Most people who are level-headed are really alarmed about what's happening right now. Yeah. Next. Little Wayne, a rapper that I know because he is extremely influential in the black community, and I know that because Odell Beckham was having problems, other people. Also, he's a heck of an entrepreneur. Out of nowhere, he met with the President of the United States over this new platinum plan mm-hmm. and came away impressed, and he will now vote for him and put on social media a picture of him and the president. He said he met, he listened, the rapper had a great meeting with the president. He was quoted as saying, Wayne believes it will give the community real ownership. And he says that he can get it done. Yeah. Ice Cube said the same thing. Right, yeah. I'm not 100% sure that they totally endorsed them or said that they were going to vote for the president. I, I could be wrong about that. But still, what what Ice Cube and um, Little Wayne are he talking about. He says he's endorsing Trump oh, based really? on his track record on criminal Lil justice Lil Wayne report. said that. Little Wayne. Okay. Uh, and, and I think that this is a, a really selfless move by... Uh, both Ice Cube and Lil Wayne putting themselves out there and saying, listen, I know that this isn't a popular position within my community, but I'm going to reach across the aisle and try and get things done. Next. Okay. Uh, ooh, what do I want to talk about? Let's talk about uh, this new study that finds LeBron James the most influential star on voting issues during the 2020 election style, <laughs> this cycle. The other influential celebrities, Taylor Swift, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Oprah Winfrey, all of them have either endorsed Joe Biden or spoken out against President Trump, but right. no surprise there. Brett Favre has just tweeted yeah. out that he is endorsing the president of the United States. We'll see. Influential. If Joe Biden still loses with the biggest people in music and in in uh, uh, and movies, yeah, Jay that's Cutler a big story. also endorsed President Trump. Yeah, Jay yeah. Cutler, yeah. The, the former standout quarterback mm-hmm. with Chicago. Next, Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost got married in a private ceremony. Aww. She is two years older than him. Do you think that's going to be a problem? <laughs> two years? Two are you, years. Are you asking me seriously? Yes. <laughs> no. I don't think that will be a problem. She's she, beautiful. I think she's one of the most beautiful people in the world. Uh, they are living. They bought an iconic four-bedroom crib there for $4 million back in 2018. Those so must they've be been really living nice with bedrooms. each other. Yeah, yeah. that must be really nice. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, this is such a cute story. A Virginia seven-year-old gets the best treat this Halloween after dressing up as Alex Trebek. So the game show host shared this sweet message with the boy on Facebook, writing, Evan, seeing you in your costume made my day. Thank you for making me smile. So this young boy has multiple disabilities, is nonverbal, but his parents say that when Jeopardy comes on, he lights up. That's fantastic. I love that. Alex Trebek. I could cry. I actually am weirdly emotional about this right now. I might need to step outside. You are in touch with your emotions, Carly. I, I, That's nothing I to be ashamed of. I surely am. Have a sensational weekend. I'm going to go ahead and whistle on out. You better. <laughs> Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
In your opinion, is socialism a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think people kind of throw that word around to try to scare you. But if helping people is socialism, then I'm for it. Trying to spread the wealth is definitely a good thing in America, and okay. it's definitely a thing that's needed. Do you have a positive reaction to socialism or a negative one? I'd say a more positive one. I'm definitely more open to it. But we should have a standard of living for all people. If we did it democratically, then we could really incorporate socialism. How would you define socialism? Hmm. Um, I mean, it's definitely more of an open form of government, and it feels like a lot more accessible to a lot more people. What does that mean necessarily, though? <sighs> I'm... To be quite honest, I don't know. <laughs> Which is exactly why P.J. O'Rourke wrote his book. Uh, a cry from the far middle, dispatches from a divided land. He's taken on socialism head on. And we're all abhorred by the fact that it seems to be resonating in today's world. In fact, almost 50 percent of young people seem to view socialism in a positive way. Young adults. And it's only growing from there. Seven in ten millennials say they'd vote for a socialist. Hence, Bernie Sanders. Uh, it's not because of his hair. P.J. O'Rourke joins us now. Hey, P.J., welcome back. Well, I'm glad to be back. And, boy, yeah, what's going on here? I mean, first place, having been a young person once, uh, <laughs> I seem to recall that young people are crazy. Uh, so that's one explanation. Well, I'll give but you your not- quote. I love your quote. P.J. O'Rourke, young people are not only penniless and powerless, they're also ignorant as hell. It comes with the territory. There's no doubt about that. But I think probably the main thing that that um, uh, that that young people aren't seeing just it's just historical. It's just a matter of time. For young people, the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is like yesterday for me, is a long, long time ago. As long ago for me as the Great Depression uh, uh, would be. And they, they 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 just haven't seen how badly this thing works. Uh, they could go look at Venezuela, but I mean Venezuela seems to be I don't know you know sort of a nutty outlier. Uh, they could go look at Cuba, but usually when they do look at Cuba, all they see is the old cars and the and, and the Guantanamera singing and the uh, and, and and cheap rum. Uh, if they were to go out into the countryside and find people starving, they, they might change their minds a little bit. It just doesn't work. Putting the government in control of an economy is an economic disaster. I mean, even go ask the communist Chinese. The communist Chinese got over socialism, and they're communists. So, uh, PJ, you think you have never really struck me as somebody in the middle. What do you mean a cry from the far middle? Well, I think our noise-to-signal ratio has gotten a little out of hand. I mean, we've got a lot of important political issues to debate, and instead we're screaming at each other, you know. It's like one of those family fights that starts out about, like, what color will the new couch be? It ends up um, um, yelling, you know, and I always hated your first wife, you know, and your mother treats me like dirt, and you leave wet towels on the bed. Uh, I, I think we're unnecessarily splitting ourselves up. I mean, I'm still the libertarian conservative as I always was, but I want, you know, I don't. I want a. I want a real fight over these issues. I don't want a professional wrestling match. We used to have a galvanizing force. You know what it was? An enemy. Soviet Union. We had to fight communism wherever we saw it, whether whatever continent. We debate on Vietnam War and what it was for, but it was really to stop communism and keep the markets free. So the Democrats and Republicans were united on that. It's how to do it would divide us. Now we don't necessarily have that common enemy. 
We're not necessarily even in the war on terror anymore, even though we to, to drop our guard would be crazy. But that's for this conversation. Is that part of the problem? Oh, that's definitely part of the problem. Nothing unites uh, America like an external enemy. And we're not a country that has, like, an internal cohesion. I mean, we're not really – we don't share ethnicity. ethnicity. Yeah, yeah, I'll try saying that three times this time in the morning. Uh, you know, we, we, we're not all related to blood. By blood, uh, we're barely related by language. You know, I mean, we come from all over the place. One of the reasons that we sometimes are hostile to foreigners is because we all are foreigners, and we know what foreigners get up to. There's a lot of inter- there's always been a lot of internal division in the United States. And, boy, we pull together when we've got an exterior threat. When we don't have an exterior threat, we pull apart. What I think concerns me, but maybe not you, I don't want to put words in your mouth or thoughts in your head because you have so much in there, is that people are ripping apart our history. They're not even talking about the future. They're upset about our past. Always easier to change the past it's, it's, it, 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 than it is to uh, change the future. The, the, we all have a chance to change the future, um, but it's just much easier to turn around and, and pretend that things were, you know, that, that, that America is founded on original sin. Well, you know, America was founded by human beings with all the sins that they have, so there's something to that. But, I mean, this is... This country was not created in order to divide people and not created in order to categorize them and not created in order to oppress them. It was created to turn them free imperfectly because it was created by human beings and human beings are imperfect. And think about the progress we have made since 1776 in terms of the freedom of individuals, whatever their gender or their color yeah. or their gender preference or so on, the, the, the progress has been amazing. It's been amazing in my lifetime. And uh, uh, to, to, to see this just despised and, and ignored and refuted and uh, see all the screaming and yelling in the streets, it, it breaks my heart. Also, it was kind of stupid. Uh, Fred, uh, Frederick Douglass was not the problem. He was an escaped slave. Don't take his stature down. Abraham Lincoln was not a problem. He did some pretty good things, according to reports. I wasn't there, but I've read some of them. So yeah. what, they're going after the wrong people. Well, of course they are. You know, once you start once you start inspecting the, the feet of your heroes, you find that they all have a bit of clay in them, you know. And, yeah, we could pull down. There's probably nobody on earth whose stature doesn't deserve to be pulled down on one count or another. Um, but, but it won't change the past. You can't change the past. Right. You know, it's best to acknowledge it. So, you know, funnily enough, you know who was opposed to Confederate war monuments? Who? Robert E. Lee. He said that uh, that Confederate war monuments should 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 be limited to those commemorating the dead, basically to graveyards. He said that to establish um, um, Confederate war m- monuments beyond uh, 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 concern for 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 you know and, and pity for the dead was to be divisive. And that's a great point. And our leaders back then were so concerned they were going to come apart again. They wanted to go out and do what Lincoln said. It says, don't go for revenge. we got to come back together. You put down your guns. You sign your loyalty. Let's, let's move forward. And that's really the spirit in which a lot of those statues were made. It's and, true. And yeah. 
So when you talk about anger today, I thought this soundbite would be perfect to build on your case, P.J. O'Rourke, cut 37, the name Nancy Pelosi. I have no confidence that he won't interfere. I think he will do anything uh, because I think he's proven uh, again and again that he is not a patriot, uh, that he has no respect for the Constitution of the United States, which he has no uh, uh, hesitation to violate. So I think you suspect the worst there. But don't dwell on him. Uh, let's reach out mm -hmm. and look forward to the American people. Because the, the more we talk about him, the less we're talking about a positive message. Now, you think she's talking about President Xi? No. Talking about no. President Trump. It's, uh, uh, you know, demonizing um, uh, uh, President Trump. Criticizing President Trump is one thing, and he's 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 open to criticism. Uh, uh, he's not my favorite president. Um, but uh, uh, to, when you demonize him, what you're doing is, I mean, what she's basically doing there is a sort of an inarticulate, um, uh, a prolix version of basket of deplorables. That you people who see something in Trump or had hopes for seeing something in Trump, or considered Trump to be a, a, a useful shakeup of, of, of a, a really sort of elitist, inert, um, complacent system, um, you, you're, you're, you're just bad people. Uh, and, and we're not going to take you into account, even though you, you, <laughs> you know, half the nation. So, PJ, put this in perspective then, because no one has to tell you what they, everyone thought of Reagan when he was in pre as a president. He was detached. He was a figurehead. He was dumb. He was losing it. Now he's looked at as one of the greats. When you remember uh, Bush 41, what a great resume, what a great accomplishment, what a great family. They looked at him as weak. He didn't win re-election. Uh, Bush 43, his numbers are going up. Uh, well, he was really, they like to call him dumb as well. Uh, as you go through our past— we were never really, uh, we were never really singing from the same hymn sheet. I get it, but what's going to bring us back together, logically? Reasonably? Ooh, that's good. Well, first we're going to have to let the fires of idiocy burn out. You know, once the idiocy underbrush gets gets a flame, you know, we we get a sort of like situation like we've got on the West Coast. We're going to probably have to put up with um, another couple of years of of, of extreme foolishness uh, from the Democrats. I, I, I fear that they that they may win in November, and um, they, they they probably will get kicked out of Congress two years thereafter. Um, but it's going to be an expensive and difficult two years. It's going to get worse before before it gets better. But then I hope that we'll start to come to a more reasonable attitude towards the government. It's just a machine. It's a big, powerful, dangerous machine, but it's just a machine. And we need to operate it in a rational yeah. manner. We put a lot of stuff into this machine in terms of our time and our energy and, our, of course, our tax dollars. And we want a product that comes out of this machine in an efficient way. Right. We want certain benefits and certain protections, rule of law and, and, and defense. And we've got to start thinking about how well that machine works, how much that machine can do, what it can do, what it can't do. And uh, it's going to I think it's going to take us a couple of years to sober up, uh, which will be great for you and me, because, you know, we make our living <laughs> commenting on idiocy. 
PJ, and if idiocy suddenly went away, we'd be out of a job. Nope, I'm a little bit, I know what you're saying, but listen, I think it would take a leader that just refuses to have personal attacks. I'm gonna, I would make the statement. I am not going after anyone personally. I'll, I'll differ you on issues, but you will not get me to answer back, and and, and you not answer attack you personally. If like what we just heard, and President Trump does a lot of that. But I thought the key, the the clues to our success, eventually was this, what I heard from Gavin Newsom and President Trump back to Gavin Newsom a couple of days ago. I want to thank you and acknowledge the work that you've done to be immediate in terms of your response. This may be a record that the states received in the FMAG support, uh, as well as the major disaster declaration, which you referenced on August 22nd, which was profoundly significant, not only to help us support our mutual aid system, but also individuals that are in desperate need of support. And they went on with global warming, we differ. They said, yeah, we will clean up the forest, yep, but on global warming, we differ. He goes, okay, I understand that. And they got up and they left. There was no barbs. I'm sure there's going to be pressure from both parties to, um, from Gavin Newsom's party to the Democratic Party to say something bad about the president, I'm sure. But in that moment, I realized how much leadership and decorum could trickle down to the rest of the country. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. That was a gentlemanly statement, and then we could use a little bit more of that, couldn't we? And I think you could still find some humor in that, PJ. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, here's like the most anti-Trump state on the, on, on the face of the earth uh, for, uh, and, and uh, a very anti-Trump governor who, who knows – how to say thank you when the, when when the federal government does something that's right for his state, and uh, yeah, that you know uh, that little soundbite improves my opinion of Newsom enormously. So, so you really owe me a lot. I do. <laughs> there you go. Uh, go out and pick up uh, P.J. O'Rourke, best-selling author, as good as it gets. His latest book, A Cry from the Far Middle: Dispatches from a Divided Land. P.J. O'Rourke, thanks so much. Thank you. Go get him, P.J. Uh, back in a moment at one, uh, with your calls at one 408 Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, I mean, it's always great to hear P.J. O'Rourke, who's got a real sense of politics, not only the history of politics, but he got the sense of knowing. Uh, he's got the, the experience of knowing a lot of these politicians personally, especially on the right, uh, Reagan and Bushes. And there's nobody been like uh, Donald Trump. But he's somebody in the establishment that could actually see what Trump does and what he does well and what was really effective. I actually look at P.J. Rourke as an example of people like Marco Rubio, uh, people like Ari Fleischer, people like Mark Thiessen, traditional Republican Dana Perino, traditional Republicans who maybe don't like the president's crassness, wish he wouldn't tweet, wish he wouldn't be actually be sometimes more as accessible as he is in such an open book as he is, don't really agree on certain things. For example, the pullout of the troops, the de-escalation against ISIS. Those are little things. But when you see the Abraham Accords, you could say, well, he's a little bit different uh, than everybody else. But, man, that is an accomplishment. Oh, he's a little abrasive with NATO. But, man, they're taking more responsibility for their own defense. And they are uh, paying a little bit more. Well, will China, ooh, we're going to set up free trade and bring them along. Well, they've been proven to be distrustful and nothing but an enemy. Well, he's just calling them out. So I, I think that that's why I give uh, old school Republicans credit, like William Bennett, for example. 
I mean, the traditional classiness of Ronald Reagan, that was the person that William Bennett was asked to work for, and George Bush. And because Trump was different doesn't mean he didn't like him. I put Newt Gingrich in that category as well. But it's always great to see somebody who can not only look at a situation, analyze a situation, but bring humor to a situation. That is uh, P.J. O'Rourke. And also, this has been an election season like nobody at no else. No, I mean, people have lost friends. Uh, people have lost family. They just don't keep in touch. It's not even worth it. And then the extended with the extended period with the election, uh, still unknown, still recounts happening, a lot of tension in these different states and the recounts and the approach with Rudy Giuliani and the way he's doing things legally and the way Hamid uh, uh, Dillon would be doing things equally uh, differently. This is all up for debate, which just made this endless election season. Then you find out that the election season is not going to end until January 5th because we have two runoffs. So what's the big deal? Oh, yeah, the big deal. The, the power in the Senate. Oh, and what's the big deal? Joe Biden and his left-wing uh, entourage will jam, get rid of the filibuster, jam, pack the courts. And I don't care what Joe Manchin said. It'll be too much pressure on him not to do it. He'll pack the courts. And don't be surprised if Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. become states. So that's what's at stake in the election season that doesn't end. But I have a prediction. I really think things are going to wind down this upcoming year uh, after all. Because there's not going to be a Donald Trump constantly in the news cycle doing things for my sake if I find intriguing, endlessly interesting to talk about. You got one of the most boring politicians out there that's going to be really run by his staff that had never had any big ideas, who uh, who thrived under cutting deals. But I don't think his party is going to let him unless the Republicans make him because they're the ones who have to win the Senate. And I'm talking, of course, about Joe Biden. And if Biden doesn't do what everyone says, you know my theory. All of a sudden, the Hunter Biden's come, uh, stories start coming up on the front page of the New York Times. And they're so ironclad, the only thing Joe Biden can do is go into the sunset to avoid controversy with his family. Stay tuned for that. We come back a segment you don't want to miss. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Listen anytime. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Appreciate you listening. Happy Black Friday, everybody. I had a chance this year to speak to one of the superstars of Hollywood who couldn't be more grounded as he grew up and now lives in Texas. His name is Matthew McConaughey. His book is inspirational, a total change. It's called Green Lights. It's what he actually wrote and lived. He took notes and journaled his whole life, and he put it to pen to paper. I think you'll love it, and I think you'll love our, his interview he did with us. Here's part one of my interview with Matthew. Matthew, you weren't going to leave anything to chance. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good to be here, Brian. No, you know, I mean, I put a lot of time into the book. Uh, I've got the opportunity to get out there and hustle it and sell it and get it in front of people. Um, I believe in the book, and so, yeah, you're damn right. I, I'm not going to be outworked on certain things like this. In a way, you value privacy, but after you're done writing this book, did you hesitate on letting it out? Because these were your innermost thoughts through 30 years of journals, only for your eyes. What made you think it was okay for others to see what you were thinking? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I didn't ever hesitate. I didn't, especially, you know, I mean, look, I had a, I had to check with a couple of people that are in some of the stories and run those stories by them. Yeah. So, hey, I told the truth. Are you cool with that? And everyone goes, 
Yeah, completely trusted me. And so, you know, I've handed the book out, and everyone who's in it that has read it, there's been nobody that's come forward and go, oh, I don't like you. You betrayed me. Everyone goes, yeah, you did tell the truth, but I, you showed the – even in some of the ugly moments in the book, even like, you know, my mother's like, yeah, you showed some of the ugly truths, but that was all true, and uh, you showed it with humanity. So, How have you been dealing with it, uh, the fact that people do know so much about you? You talk about people walking yeah. up to you thinking they know you. How have you dealt with the fact that when you're done with this interview, the Howard Stern interview, the Joe Rogan podcast, people even know more about you? Are you okay with that? Well, actually, what I am okay here, here's why it's an asset. <laughs> now, look, it's it's out there, you know. So you're gonna come up. Um, there's not gonna be as big of a gap between who you think I am and who I really am because I just let you know. Uh, if you if you checked out the book, you're not thinking, uh, you know, that I'm some that I'm somebody other than I am. Uh, it's obvious who I am, and I'm very clear about it. So this book is the most. This book is a, is the truest permanent extension of me that I've ever put out. So. I'm not wearing another hat in this book. I'm not playing another part in this book. I'm not glossed up in a magazine in certain another picture in this book with that somebody else wrote about me. No, this is a direct line from McConaughey out there. And if you like it and it translates, which it seems to be doing for a lot of people, you it, it, it's a true mirror of me. You know, I always say this. We got different. We got we got all kinds of mirrors in our life. Sometimes we got those mirrors that they have on Beverly Hills that make you look really nice and skinny really nice and thin and sometimes you get those mirrors at the, at the circus that make you look way overweight <laughs> well this is a true mirror this book is a true mirror it is it is who i am so you know your uh, your thoughts on the fly as you grew up just blow me away because they're as if somebody there's if you're thinking out loud but they're written by a, an excellent writer as it did right. you look back and say, wow, that's pretty insightful? And it led a lot of your chapters. In case people don't know, you open up this book, and you see the tearaways of your journal in that. And one of it says, life is not a popularity contest. Be brave. Take the hill. But first, answer the question, what is my hill? What is your yeah. hill, Matthew, to be famous, to be successful, to make money? Right. Well, it, it's look, it's, you know— Another way of saying that is asking ourselves continually, what do we value? Right. And that answer will change over time. You know, you're a single man. You're, what you value in life is different than if you get married and have children. You know, so it, it changes in through life. But my, mine, I've had different pursuits. I've had different things I've gone after. I will say this. For the most part, I didn't ever jeopardize who I essentially am and who, who, who I essentially am as – an, an integral man, a man who's trying to be his best, a man who's, who's you know, wanting to take care of myself, uh, my relationships that I have in my life, my relationship with God, my, 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 uh, uh, you could, I've always been somebody to shake your hand, look you in the eye and say, we're going to do this. You can pretty much, you don't have to look over your shoulder again. We'll, we'll get it done. Um, so, you know, now I've got children. That's it. Fatherhood, husbandry, keeping my family unit together and, and, and helping, grow and shepherd some hopefully autonomous, conscientious, confident young men and women out of our household, a.k.a. our children. That's what I mostly value because I think that's the greatest legacy actually a, a, a man or a parent can leave. Um, so what are the things I'm after now? Um, you know, looking at leadership roles um, that may or may not be on a screen. They may be actually live in, in, in life, working on this minister of culture role that I've, that I've been uh, created and, and then finding some real need for it. And that's my goals now. Because people saw how active you were, 
now in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 crisis, and they see you taking action in it, and they thought, hey, has Matthew McConaughey got a political career in his future? Yeah, um, I've been asked that a lot recently. Um, I think a lot of people that are reading the book are bringing that up as well. I don't, I don't have any plans for that. Look, I got questions about politics. I, 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 you know, I bet you do too. What, what, politics is at a, at a real crossroads where for whatever side uh, and how, wherever you were on this year's uh, election or the election four years ago, politics has sort of some explaining to do. What is it? <laughs> I think a lot of people are going, it's a time to redefine, to declare what it is that, you, that, that politics is. What is the purpose of politics? Um, that's a real question that I think that politicians and politics needs to answer. What is its purpose? Um, and I, I, I want to know that answer, you know, and understand that answer uh, first before I would I, I would really sort of be interested in hopping into politics. And which brings me to is if you make a mistake in my business, maybe in your in your business, definitely this whole cancel culture thing. It doesn't have to be just people on the left. I know Jimmy Kimmel got uh, got some issues over right. the summer. I know that Tillman Fertitta, who owns just about every restaurant in the country, uh, he has two rockets rumored to want to leave his team because evidently he supported Trump. Uh, there's Harvard University said uh, reportedly has a petition. If you work for Trump, you cannot apply to the university. I mean, this whole cancel culture, does it concern <laughs> you at all, being that the powerful people are yeah, in the middle of sure. it? Well, sure it does. And look, I'm just going to without going into specifics and you just listed some and you know, there's, there's something, there's some cancellations that you go, yep, you know what? That's a three strikes you're out, uh, move. But as far as canceling by via affiliations, conversation, condemnations without conversations. Um, look if, and then let's just, let me just go back to, let me, here's the way I look at it on more, a, even a more personal level, forget your politics and stuff. We've started this trend a long time ago in America where if, 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 if I'm behind you at the red light and it turns green and I bump into your bumper, or let's say you bump into my bumper behind me, right, on the road. Yep. The, 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 the American thought has become, oh, well, wait a minute. If, 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 I feel, if my vertebrae hurt, I can sue this guy yep. and make a bunch of money. So I'm going to get out, and you see it. I'm going to maybe have a hand over, and you go, oh, I bumped your bumper. I'm sorry. Here's my insurance. I'll fix it. And I go, well, now, wait a minute. It may be more than the bumper, and I'm going to have to go see my doctor. And so you got people chasing lawsuits and things like looking for angles to screw people over in ways instead of going, hey, man, sorry. And you're like, dude, I was looking out the window, not paying attention. Sorry, I bumped into your bumper. And I go, cool. Got your insurance. Do the deal. We shake hands and move on. Mistake. Shake on, shake on it move on. Forgive it. Also, if someone screws up, which everyone screws up, all right, if someone is going to seek real retribution, yes. they have to seek it on – they have to, you have to see that they mean it. Not this, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, and I'm a repeat offender of whatever it is that you want to cancel me for. But if they seek real retribution, we got to have room for forgiveness. we got to have room for, okay, yep, once, shame on you, twice, shame on me. So I understand that, and right now – we are invalidating people, illegitimizing people, persona non gratifying people because of an affiliation they may have or a picture that they may have of them shaking a doggone hand with somebody that we don't agree with politically or denominationally. Well, that's going – a lot of that is going too far. You know, someone in my business said something um, – uh, 
a couple of months ago. I forget who it was. I wish I remembered her name because it was really smart. She was like, "What?" The, she was. I think her quote was like, "What do you folks think you're doing trying to play God?" <laughs> exactly. And who are these people? Was a really was a really well. Look, everyone's extre- look. Everyone's tethered at the internet. Everyone's so damn reactionary. We got we, we we had an illiberal left way off the way off the rails on the left. We got a far far right that's off the rails on the right, I believe. In this time of in unemployment, COVID, and it's not new to this year, but it sure bubbled over a lot this year and exposed itself this year. People were looking for an identity and looking for purpose, and they ran to some extremes to just feel like they have some footing. Mm-hmm. And I think they're having some buyer's remorse on both sides. So, oh, wait a minute, who I'm sitting at the table with, this this tribe I ran to, I don't really know if this is who I want to be hanging out with. I thought it was, but maybe it's not. So hopefully it's going to relax. They're going to you know, sort of relax their hands on that proverbial far, far left and far, far right, right. poles they're holding on to. Yeah. And you can come back and at least look across and go, hey, you know what? I've been over here not even really knowing what I believe in, but I've been screaming at you going, all I know is I don't believe what you believe in. And that's kind of a short-term way of looking at things. So, again, I, I, I've been saying this a little bit when I say, hey, I'll meet you in the middle. I think that is more of a challenge, more of a dare, dare more of an aggressively centric challenge to us as Americans right now than it's ever been. Yeah, I have an opinion. I, my opinion on this is going to be let like sports. You know in sports there's a trade, and do you want that number one pick yeah. or do you want that player that's 31 years old and at the peak of his career? And It's fun to debate at the sports bar. Well, can you imagine doing an immigration deal? Imagine doing a budget where mm-hmm. both sides compromise, and you sit there and we talk about the deal instead of the standoff right. and the next election. Right. And that's where I think we're going to get to at some point. And Mark Penn just did this study. He's the steam pollster. He used to work with the Clintons. He said it turns out from this past election – most Americans are moderate. So that should give Matthew McConaughey a reason to sleep maybe nine and uh, ten and a half hours uh, tonight and make you feel a little <laughs> bit better. I haven't done that in a while. I'd love to. I haven't done that in a while. You know, the thing is, when we hear that word moderate, right, when you hear, you hear me say something like, hey, meet you in the middle, people go, oh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's the, the gray area of compromise. Right. You know, uh, and, 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 and no, that's false. It's not, it's not always. It can actually be where actually the truth all the all the truth lies. Um, I, I would say this: conference. You got to have confrontation to have unity. All right, but let me ask you this: if you do not validate your opponent's opinion or stance, if you do not even consider that legitimate, if you consider if you think opposite than me, then you don't exist. You are evil. Is that really confrontation? I would say it's not. Confrontation, at least. You have to come to the table going, I recognize my opponent. Therefore, we can come together by recognizing that we have a difference. But if you don't even recognize that you have an opponent, if you make that other 50% and look at our, look at our election, you, you're calling that other 50% illegitimizing them, thinking that they are nothing but foolish or evil or persona non grata, well, that's not real confrontation. I hear you. That's just denial. That's denial. And then everything shuts down. So, well, uh, Matthew, the other thing I just thought of, too, I remember Vince Vaughn went to say hello to President Trump. I remember that uh, Ellen DeGeneres wanted to uh, had a conversation with uh, President Bush, and they had to explain themselves. I mean, that's crazy. That's in your yeah. business. These are, these are titans of the business. No, I, I hear you. You know, and, and look, it, it's like it's like, uh, you know, this this immediacy of this culture with Twitter and everything else and comments and stuff. And 
So remember how it used to be. I remember, and, and I wasn't on it. I wasn't even on it. But I would notice that it was like, it was about what you tweeted about. Okay. Yes. So it's like, hey, what was the tweet? And then all of a sudden it became like, well, if an issue came out and you didn't tweet support for it, it was your non-tweet that got you in trouble. I heard. Like, I where are we? <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> and you're like, what? And people are coming out going, you know, yeah, that's right. I'm, I, I'm going to stand up and I want everyone to know I'm, I, I'm against rape. And you're like, well, no shit. <laughs> what, did you have to come out and say that? Or you know, what did you have to defend? I hear. certain obvious things. You're just like, hey, we got to have those ex- expectations of ourselves without having to come out and someone say, well, if you didn't say it, <laughs> then you must believe the opposite. And I was going, well, hang on. That's, that's a... That turns into anarchy. That doesn't make any sense. I just love talking to that guy. You just heard part one. When we come back, part two with Matthew McConaughey and his book, Green Lights. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Matthew McConaughey with us. His book, Green Lights, number one in the country. And it's as much as you, you enjoy hearing about him, it really can motivate you to be a better person, not necessarily be a great actor, although we have something in common. We both look great without shirts on. But that's for another time, Matt, and I'll have to prove that to you in a different movie. I'm studying for a different role at this hour. But, uh, Matthew, I was just in the Third Street Promenade two weeks ago. It's all boarded up. And then I'm reading your, the part of your uh, book when you talk about it. So here you are in your Third Street Promenade. You said there's 400 people there. 396 don't know you exist. A couple of girls thought you were hot, and maybe a guy recognized you. And then two weeks later, you do this movie, Time to Kill, and it all changed. Here's a piece of that movie. Now comes the hanging. They tie a noose. The hanging branch isn't strong enough. It snaps, and she falls. So they pick her up. Throw in the back of the truck, drive out to Foggy Creek Bridge, pitch her over the edge. She drops some 30 feet. Can you see her? Her raped, beaten, broken body, soaked in their urine, soaked in their semen, soaked in her blood, left to die. I want you to picture that little girl. Now imagine she's white. The defense restaurant. Great moment, obviously, from just a guy who, who bought a ticket. But for you, what did it do? Well, you know, that final summation time to kill. It, it was my first major lead role. I understood enough about storytelling to know that that scene has to work for the whole movie to work. If that scene doesn't work, if the performance in that scene by the actor playing Jake Brigance, which was me. If it doesn't work, that movie doesn't work. So it's kind of what I call a hinge scene. Every every film will have a hinge scene, one or two. And that was the hinge scene, the big, the big summation in Time to Kill. That, what you see, what you just heard, was take one. Um, that's where I learned a, a valuable lesson about being so prepared for a situation that I can come to it extremely relaxed. And that's where I also learned that everything after take one is acting. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's the, I remember walking in there and the director going, okay, 
we're going to shoot the wide shots here um, and let Matthew warm up into this scene. And then we'll shoot the jury. And then this afternoon, we'll do the close-ups when he's nice and warm. And I didn't even look him in the eye. I just kind of walked over to him and, and, and elbowed him in the side. And he goes, mm-hmm. And I didn't even look at him. And I just put two fingers up and pointed at my eyes and, and pointed at my chest. And he goes, okay, no, we're not. We are going straight to the close-up of Matthew. Here we go. Close-up first. So, boom, that shot right there, that scene was the – that was take one. Um, that's all we needed. We were done. So I hope you enjoyed that. We have the whole interview on BrianKilmeadeShow.com. And uh, I know he's done a lot of interviews, but each one he takes like his first. For a guy to be that famous, that successful, and sell a book like there is no tomorrow in a very sincere way for a guy that does this, it's very, very rare. And he deserves to be number one. Also, we didn't get to a lot of stuff that's in the book that you will love, including how he solved his hair loss problem. Uh, He should get a sponsorship out of it. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Interested in it? Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everyone. Matthew McConaughey was kind enough to come on the show. Interviewed him on Fox and Friends, and he gave us even more time on the Brian Kilmeade show. And here we talk about his movie, A Time to Kill, that changed his life and changed his career. He was brilliant, a lawyer with Sandra Bullock. You might remember it. Here we talk more about it. Here's more with Matthew McConaughey, author of Green Lights. When the movie finally hits. And you walk on the 32 yeah. Promenade two weeks later or one week later? What, what's the difference? Yeah, so the movie hits, and I'm talking about not even a week later, two days later. The Friday before Time to Kill comes out, I'm walking down the promenade, 400 people, 396 mind their own business, four to notice me. The next Monday, two days later, I walk down that promenade, the world inverted. 396 people staring at me, four of them not, and one of those people were blind. I'm checking and wondering about my nose, if i got a booger on my nose, my fly open, what the heck's going on? The world had become a mirror. Um, I know that day, from that day on, I was like, oh, I meet no strangers ever again. Because everybody, either they know me or they think they know me and have a certain biography on me. People come up and go, oh, I'm so sorry about Miss Hud. And I'm like, well, first off, what's your name? Second off, how'd you know I had a dog? Third, how'd you know her name was Miss Hudden? Fourth, how'd you know she had cancer? You just skipped four things before right. we even said hi. You know, and it was kind of shocking. Um, and um, I also, for the first time, had every offer, almost every offer in Hollywood came to me to say yes to. Well, remember, two days before that, I would have done anything. But the answer was, no, you can't. So all of a sudden, two days later, Time to Kill comes out, and now the answer is all those things you couldn't do, we're saying, yes, you can. And I was like, wow, awesome. Uh-oh, what do I do? <laughs> you know? So I got out of Dodge. I went off to a monastery for a while to go hear myself think and took a trip to Peru with a backpack and had to get out of there to go find out what really mattered to me while I all of a sudden had this new sort of all this affluence. And that's the one thing that comes to mind. If you go to uh, Los Angeles, a lot of my friends do it, and the struggle, I understand the struggle and the frustration. I get it. But what's so hard about success and fame? How do you tell to people that it's it's much harder than it seems? Sure, sure, sure. 
Well, look, the, the, too many options can make a tyrant out of any of us. And that's what comes with success, the infinite yeses. And that's where the devil's business comes up. It's in all the infinite, it's all the yeses. And you look up and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're saying yes to things because you can do them for the first time. But you forget to ask yourself, wait a minute, did I really want to do that? Do I really believe in that? Is that really who I am? Because you're just going, well, what do you mean? Of course, it's the first time I ever had the option of doing it. <laughs> so yes is the answer. Well, all of a sudden you can look up. And if you don't look up soon enough, you can find yourself just sort of making revolutions in life, going in circles, and you're not really evolving, and you're not really enriching the things that you're about, and you're kind of over-leveraged. You kind of – you've got like – I call it this. You've got like you know 20 little campfires lit but no big flames, and you're like, well, wait a minute. What am I about? I'm, 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 I'm kind of – for instance, in my success, I – I started a production company, a music label. Um, I, you know, I was, a, I was a, uh, an actor, obviously. I had my foundation. I had my family. I had my own health to take care of. Well, I looked up one day, and my production company called me at my house, my production company, where I pay the salaries and I pay the rent. And my hand paused to pick up the phone when I saw the number it was coming from. And I remember looking at my hand going, what the hell are you doing pausing to pick up the phone call from your own office? And I realized right then, I said, okay, call my lawyer, shut down the production company, shut down the music company. Because what I noticed is I was making, you know, B minuses in these six things in my life. And I was like, I got to get rid of a couple so I can make A's in fewer. And I need to give more time to what it is I care about, what it is that I want to grow, what it is that really is more of my true self. And I had to eliminate. So, you know, with success, you get the infinite yeses, but you have to, to have some process of elimination in there because you can't say yes to everything. If you say yes to everything, then it's really about nothing. See, this is why I think people, non-actors, are going to love your book and are liking your book because people can learn. You constantly want to get better. Uh, why am I doing this? How do I make it better? Why am I doing this? Why am I getting better? And you take a lot of trips and put yourself on, on a line in which it's almost unthinkable. But in two other, two other questions. You want to be a dad at eight. Why? And yeah. what do you think your dad yeah. would think of his youngest son being so successful? What do you think he'd be like now watching yeah. you? Well, so at eight years old, I knew that's the first thing until I opened the book. The only thing I ever knew I wanted to be was a dad. And it happened at eight years, of that, uh, eight years old, and I remember it. My dad was obviously a sir, a man was pleased, and thank you, man. And um, I understood that I would say those things out of respect. And sir and ma'ams, especially respect for elders that had lived longer than me. And out of respect, you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I understood that. But at eight years old, I was shaking two of his friend's hands. Looking up, looking them in the eye and saying, nice to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you, sir. It had hit me in my eight-year-old mind that the common denominator of everybody I had been saying sir to, the men that my dad was introducing me to over the last, you know, I was eight years old, so I'd shaken hands for the last, you know, six years, I guess, or five, whatever. The common denominator between all those men is that they were fathers. They had kids. And in my eight-year-old mind, I said, oh, that's when you made it. <laughs> oh, that's success. That's how you get to be a sir. 
That's how you get someone to look up to you. You become a father. And that's when I was like, well, that's what I know I want to be. That's the, and and, I, and I, I've never wavered off of that. It was always in my lineage from that day that I wanted to be a father. And now I fortunately and happily am. I've got children, 12, 10, and 7. What would my dad, you know, my dad moved on five days after I started my very first film, Days Confused. Now, there's serendipity in that and that he was alive for me to start something that became more than a hobby, that became a career. Here I am 28 years later and love what I do. So that, I, I take pleasure in that. But I do miss – I dad, dad would have – I would have enjoyed sharing a script with him. Hey, what do you think? Hey, this character, you know, I was thinking about so-and-so, and him going, oh, no, I know somebody. You know, old uh, Jim Buzon, he, we got, he was this guy I met. Bah, 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 bah. Hey, you want to take a drive over? Let's take, let, 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 let's take a drive over over to, over to so-and-so about five hours away. We'll, we'll, we'll take a drive over there, get a bucket of chicken on the way, go sit down with him and, and, and stay the night and come home tomorrow. Yeah, let's go. We would have taken some road trips together to go sort of investigate characters and people and places. And that I miss. He would have also been on the front row of being a fan. I think he would have really enjoyed it. Because he, he, I found out after he passed away, you know, we had, I didn't think we had any art or creative side to our family. He passes away. We go to the attic. I find these sculptures. I find these paintings. I find these drawings. I'm like, who's are these? My mom goes, oh, that's your, that's your dad. He would do that after you go to bed. I go, huh. Okay. So... He would, I think he would have really enjoyed the storytelling. And he was a, well, he was a ham. He was a great storyteller, man. He was, that's where I got a lot of my storytelling skills um, from him. He could spin a yarn. Well, that's uh, pretty amazing. And also the, when you called him up to say, I don't want to be a lawyer, I want to go to film school, you, didn't, you were ready for the blowback from a working class guy that probably was looking forward to having a lawyer in the family. And he said, don't half-ass it. Don't half-ass it. Don't half-ass it. And that's the theme throughout your book. Don't go halfway, right? No, you know, that's a good one to put in your pocket. Anyone to put in your pocket, whatever you got going on in your life. If you're fortunate enough to have something that you want to be good at, that you can be good at, that you maybe hopefully have an innate ability to be good at, and you're willing enough to put the work in to either whether that's educating yourself or or the or the or the, the sweat equity to, that it takes and time and commitment, boy. If you can, don't half-ass it. Is if you're gonna, you know, don't act like one, be one. You know what I mean? If you got something you want to do, don't half-ass it. Is a good adage to keep in your pocket and perspective. Absolutely. And what kind of father are you, are you Matthew? Uh, look, you know. You, 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 right before we have children, everyone's probably experienced this. Everyone unsolicitedly. Everyone gives you a bunch of books, how-to books. <laughs> and I remember, you know, going like, that's a little presumptuous for all these books that people are just giving us without even, you know, asking if we want the damn thing. But some of them were good. Um, but I remember, you know, talking to my mom over the years about and, and talking to different parents who, who had good relationships with their children whose children had gone on once they left the household and gone on to become good citizens and good, good humans, you know? Um, and it, it, the rule, the, what I noticed, the one rule was, Hey, if you're not sure what to do, just love them. And if you <laughs> love them, you really can't go wrong and loving them. If you really love them, 
Memes saying no, and some a lot of times memes means you got to stay up late and have the hard conversation when it would have been a heck of a lot easier to just say yes and go to bed. Loving them can, means the work's going to be harder uh, in raising them. But fatherhood is a verb. I think we all know that. All fathers out there, parenthood is a verb, and it's the most reverential um, sort of job I think we have on the planet as humans, is as parents. And boy, that's another place we could all just do do better at being parents and try to keep the homes together and try to keep two parent homes together longer and stick it out not half-ass that job of being a good parent that's how we make some real good change yeah it's all about caring and hustle we didn't touch on your regenx we didn't touch on the oil of mink you stole in pizza but i do not want to abuse this time <laughs> two times talking to me can weigh on anybody and I, I i hope to get the sequel and by the way by you writing this book and promoting this book and going number one your dad would be proud. You're not half-assing it, Matthew. You're uh, going all the way. Uh, heard. Well, uh, I, I pretty clearly see him uh, making a pot of gumbo, having a Miller Lite, sipping a Miller Lite can, and, and waiting for that lemon meringue pie, uh, looking down at, at what I'm doing. So that makes me happy. He is uh, Matthew McConaughey. His book is called Green Lights. It wasn't all green lights, but he points to the times that were and what led up to him and what he did after. You're going to love the experiences and love the story. Matthew, best of luck the rest of the way. Hope to talk to you again. All right. I enjoyed it. Speak go, to you next time. All right. Go get it, Matthew. Matthew McConaughey. So it was great talking to Matthew McConaughey. A lot of times these guys don't write their own books. They don't really know what's in them. He knew every step of it. In fact, what kind of frustrated me is even though he gave us a half hour, I had so much more that I wanted to ask him. I mean, one of the key moments I thought was very interesting that we could all relate to, even though we're not all actors, especially me. He's trying to go, so he has a movie, and he already hits off on Days and Confused. And he goes out to Los Angeles, doesn't really know anybody. He thinks he's going to walk right in and start getting jobs. And he got one, and then he took an acting class, and he started going backwards. He wasn't impressing anyone. So then he walks up to the producer that put him in Days and Confused, and he said, can you introduce me to your agent? And, his, and the producer snapped back, and here's the quote. Shut the blank up uh, and stop talking right now. Uh, this town smells needy, meaning he's sounding needy. You are done for before you you're done built before you even get started. So if you walk in there and you seem needy to meet an agent, need an agent, you're done. You hear me? You need to be cool. You need to get the blank out of here. Get out of town. Stop taking these classes. Go to Europe. Go anywhere. You have to relax. When he came back, he didn't need an agent. He wanted an agent, but most of all, he wanted his agent to want him. That was after he already did a hit movie and was wanted in Hollywood and was brought in. Now, Joel Schumacher, Joe Schumacher was the one who brought him Time to Kill. And when he got Time to Kill, there was another part there. They said, you're not ready for it. And he said, why? Because we need a big name. And out of nowhere, Sandra Bullock hit on some other movie. She became a big star. They no longer needed a big male lead. So they could put a relatively unknown in that slot. And on Mother's Day, he got the word that he got the job. And everybody knew if he got the job, he was going to be, he was going to arrive. They, because he was starting to be a lawyer. He understood the part. He certainly understood what was at stake. And that came across. And after that, he's been internationally famous. And so crazy was his life that he had to go away to the Amazon to get his head back together. A couple other things I did not go over. His dad and triceps. He says he wanted a great body. He was watching all these bodybuilders on TV. And he basically, his dad says, 
if you actually want to know, his dad took a shirt off, it was somebody's hardworking and the, and the parts of a body needs to be built up, it is your triceps. It shows how hard you work. Next, oil of mink. His mom was selling oil of mink. He kept putting it on his face. They said it was supposed to be good for your face. It made him break out. So when they realized it was actually bad for your face, they tried to sue him. But by the time the suit got to trial, his face had cleared up, and they found out and did some research. They said, you're voted most handsome in high school. Please tell me how you were traumatized by oil of mink. Case closed. He lost. Kind of weird, right? Back in a moment with some more interview, with some more on this, this year in shows, as well as off camera with Lynn Cheney and off mic. Thanks for basting the turkey while listening to the best of Brian Kilmeade. Happy Thanksgiving from all of us at the Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. You know, I like to write, read history, talk about history, and write history. That's why I came out. Even have a young adult version of George Washington Spies uh, and Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates. If you have a young kid, 8 to 13, go grab that book on BrianKilme.com or on Amazon. If you want anyone to personalize, Andrew Jackson, Miracle of New Orleans, uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, Sam Houston the, uh, and the uh, Alamo Avengers, and, of course, uh, George Washington's Secret Six. But when Lynn Cheney writes books, I also can't wait to read them, especially when he talks about this Virginia connection and the starting of our country. And to catch up with her, I need to catch up with her in the afternoon. And she wasn't quite ready. And we finally catch up to her. I could tell there was something wrong. And evidently, she got a puppy. And with that puppy, evidently, Dick Cheney was supposed to be watching it, but she was watching it. You know, puppy, even though you're on the air with me, you can't stop. And I didn't know what was going on, but I knew she was losing her breath. Listen to a behind-the-scenes portion of an interview we normally would cut out and get rid of, but I wanted to share it. Brian, excuse me. Somebody is using the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> but you can I can't, edit all I this. can't hear it. But You can't. Okay, no. that's good. I'm okay. But I do hope the place gets clean while we, because this way we could be really productive. We could talk about your book and clean. Okay. Okay, look. The other thing is I have a new puppy. Oh, you do? What kind of dog? During the first part of this conversation, um, I uh, was trying to take a blanket away from him, which he was chewing with his little puppy teeth. So <laughs> discombobulated it, it, I am. Now, did uh, your husband have a say in this purchase? Oh, it was it was his idea. Um, he and he loves this little dog, and I do too. Well, here's the puppy back again. All right, at least I saved a blanket from you, <laughs> <laughs> Brian. I'm sorry. And then we ended up having an interview, but for a while, she was out of breath, and I'm thinking to myself, "What's going on? I hope she's okay." But chasing around the puppy at any age can be exhausting, and that's what we were kind of witnessing. Just a fun time, uh, a part of our whole year like no other in 2020, and this is one of the best of editions. Listen, if you like the show, and I know you do, if it doesn't work for your schedule, it'll work for podcasts. Go to BrianKillMeShow.com, go to Spotify, go to iTunes, go to iHeart. You can unload it, uh, download it anywhere you want, anytime you want, and BrianKillMe.com to get any of my books at any moment. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here.
From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City. Information you want. Truth you demand. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening. Right, this hour is going to be kind of cool as we look at this best of edition on this Black Friday. We're going to speak to Catherine and John Gordon. They wrote this great book you can relate to, Relationship Grit. You know what? A lot of people have been locked up, losing their jobs, or have to stay home and work from home, going to school, whatever the situation. But a lot of times it wears on a relationship, correct? John and Catherine relate some of the secrets that they learned over the years. They're true experts and good people, and they got a great book, Relationship Grit. But I also had a chance to fly out and do a special with Jim Gray in his brand-new book. It's called Talking to Goats. Goats means greatest of all time. And I think he is one of the most acclaimed sportscasters of his generation. Great moments, great players. They're not only things that he covered well, but he also in many, many ways from Bill Walton to Dr. J., to Tom Brady and Mike Tyson, they became personal friends. Here's Jim Gray. I'm talking to goats. Mr. Kraft, do you feel appreciated by them, and do they have the appropriate gratitude for what you have achieved? I plead the fifth. (laughs) I think everybody in general wants to be appreciated more at work, you know, in their professional life, but there's a lot of people that are appreciate me more than, way more than I ever thought, you know, was possible as part of my life. So So you you take it from them? Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's, you have different influences in your life. And I think the people that I work with, they're trying to get the best out of me. So they're trying to treat me in a way that they feel is going to get the best out of me. And, you know, I've got to get the best out of myself. So read between the lines. Tom Brady does not feel, I guess in Bill Belichick's case, perhaps, that he was uh, appreciative of what he did for the franchise with the Super Bowls, the victories, and maybe with very, without the, a, lot, a lot of talent surrounding him that you would think Super Bowl champions or pretty Super Bowl contenders would have. Uh, but you got what he meant. He said, maybe Bill Belichick's being tough on me to get me better. Jim Gray is the one who asked those questions, and he asked Tom Brady questions every week uh, during the football season. He's author of a brand-new book called Talking to Goats, an acronym meaning greatest of all time. Uh, and that man you just heard from wrote the forward to Jim Gray's book. He's in multiple sports hall of fames. Jim Gray, welcome to the welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Brian, thank you. Good to be with you. So where were you? Set the scene when you were talking to Tom Brady. For that that, that bump in that uh, we just that had. Was at the, that was at the Milken Institute, the Milken Global Conference uh, a few years ago. Uh, uh, Mike Milken, who uh, puts on this global conference and, and gets uh, people from all walks of life, uh, Nobel Prize winners, presidents, uh, and so forth, puts on an amazing conference. Uh, and uh, I usually do a sports panel there, uh, one or two for the conference. Uh, had Kobe Bryant in the past. Uh, Jerry West, Bill Walton, Joe Torrey, John Wooden, so forth. And so Tom was the guest that year. Right. No doubt about it. Tom made the cut for the book, Greatest of All Time. I don't really think people debate that much anymore who's the greatest quarterback ever, uh, despite last weekend, uh, and what he's doing at 43. Jim, when you finally got done with this book, did you have more of an appreciation from the journey you've been on? Did you discover anything about yourself as you look back at some of the great moments and the great people that you've interviewed? Well, yeah, just that it all happened, Brian, and, and when you put it all together and, you know, you don't necessarily just think about it on a day-to-day basis. You're just going about your life and living and, and trying to do the best you can in your job and with your family and so forth. So uh, when you go back and you review, you know, tens of thousands of events and interviews and uh, start digging through the uh, tapes and transcripts and in your memory and, and notes and um, uh, all the stuff that you've uh, accumulated over that time, and I had tremendous help, uh, Greg Bishop, uh, great writer from Sports Illustrated, uh, wrote the book with me, and uh, he was just uh, fantastic in how he organized it all and 
uh, got it down on paper and, and made it come made it come to life. And and uh, uh, I'm so grateful to him. So we have an hour special. I was lucky enough to come out and interview you for an hour special. It's going to be on Fox News, 10 o'clock Sunday. And then Fox Nation will have the expanded version, which you're not going to – if you even remotely like sports or you, like, you recognize some great moments in sports, you will not be able to pull you away from this special because, Jim, you provided a lot of the footage too. You even have uh, a 10-year-old uh, Tiger Woods where you interviewed him uh, and could, maybe you could set the scene of when you came across this a young phenom who lived up to the hype. I uh, was uh, moved out to Los Angeles and uh, was here for the Olympics, uh, working on the official film of the uh, 1984 Olympics with Bud Greenspan, and was a freelancer uh, in sports, uh, including freelancing for ESPN. And I saw in the old Herald Examiner uh, that there was a, uh, a eight or nine year old Eldrick Woods had hit his third hole in one uh, at Cypress Club. Uh, in Southern California on whatever the number was, you know, using a six iron on the par three, fifth hole or whatever it was. And I, I looked at that and I said, it's got to be a misprint. You know, there's no nine-year-old who's doing this. Uh, just can't be that he had that many. Uh, so I cut it out. And the old agate type used to be uh, the transactions where you could get everything. It was one-stop shopping. You'd find out who was traded, who was hired, yeah. who was fired for hockey, basketball, baseball, and, and golf and so forth called down there to John Allensmo, who was the head pro, and I said, is this true? Is there somebody named Eldrick Woods who's down there at all? Yep, he's here every day. I said, really? Do you think uh, I could come down there and, and, and uh, interview him? He said, well, as far as the course is concerned, that would be fine, and I'll make myself available too, but as far as the young man is concerned, and he called him Tiger, he said everybody calls him Tiger, you'd have to ask his dad, who's here with him every day. So hired a camera crew myself and went down there and asked uh, Earl Woods, who was Tiger's father, and he said, sure. And uh, so during that, we uh, uh, taped him, you know, hitting golf balls for quite a while and in the sand trap and putting and so on and so forth. And it was truly remarkable. And did he interview? And in that interview, uh, Tiger said, you know, one day he, he, he hopes to win all the majors and beat all the pros. Uh, became a very famous uh, <laughs> uh, line of Tiger's uh, later on in his life, in his life when he uh, uh, did in fact do that. And uh, I also asked him, uh, Brian, could I be his caddy? And he asked me if I could read greens, and he said, sure, but just the basic 10%. So we've often uh, laughed about that over the years. It, it was a big financial uh, mistake by me not to do that. Right, and I just one thing that <laughs> <laughs> you should have. You, you could have been fluff before fluff, uh, but you were a little Correct. thinner. Um, but a couple of things uh, come to mind, Jim, is that when I read this book, you're a guy that's always open, always asks the questions, always curious, but you also seem to break through with these guys. And even that question to Tom Brady that you just asked him, you're friends with him. He probably doesn't want that. He knows the answer, if you ask me, is probably Belichick doesn't appreciate what I've done. I think Kraft probably does. And, and he probably, you ask him tough questions, and he says that. We're friends, but you'll still, when it comes to Kobe Bryant, when it comes to Tiger Woods, you still, you'll still ask these guys the tough questions that a lot of times in Mike Tyson's case, too, might make them uncomfortable. Is that tough? Well, no. I mean, I, 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 think, I think you have to do that, and, and all of these guys are aware of that when they agreed to do the interview, Brian. You know, you have to be able to ask them what has gone on and transpired in the game that they have just played or, or what's, what's coming up in front of them. You know, so as long as it's on the field of play, yeah. you, know, you know, I said this uh, a couple of years ago. We were doing a roundtable with Mike Tyson at the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and he was, you know, nice enough to come up there and, and do my induction. 
And and somebody asked that question you just asked, and I and I hadn't thought of it after all these years until then. And I said, you know, Mike Tyson has just been hit 150 times in the head by Evander Holyfield. Tom Brady's been sacked four times by Michael Strahan. Um, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant have had their foot stepped on. They've been elbowed all game. Um, do you really think that anything that I can say to them about that performance is offensive? More offensive than being hit in the head by the guy <laughs> and their opponent? If they can't take this question, <laughs> how did they ever face the guy who was in front of them so, or the team? Absolutely. And Mike Tyson's coming back again, and, and now he's in his 50, I think 53. So one of the, the one of the things that sticks out about the book is not only the great people you interviewed, but the great moments that you covered, one of which was a Holyfield-Tyson rematch. You said to me, uh, when chaos started breaking out in the ring and Tyson bites Holyfield's ear, you went right to the ref. You said nobody ever hits the ref. <laughs> well, if you stand next to Mills Lane, you know, the police were in there and they were pulling their billy clubs and Mike still wanted to fight. He was going after Holyfield. He was going after the trainers, uh, perhaps with some of the sheriffs. If you stand next to the referee in Mills Lane, no fighter, nobody in any sport. If you hit a referee, you will never fight again. If you do it in football or right. basketball or baseball with the umpire, you'll never play again. So I thought that was the safest place because Mike's not going to come over here. I mean, something could spill out of control and immediately could happen. But if you're next to him, I didn't think there was going to be any possible way that he was going to be bothering with Mills Lane. So that's what I did. Jim Gray with us now. His book, Talking to Goats. You got it. Download it. You got to go buy it if you love sports and want the inside story of events that you think you know everything. So Jim Gray, probably one of the finest moments, if you ask me, and I think you maybe agree with me, is you your goal after that, even though Holyfield technically won, go get Tyson. So you told Don King, I need to speak to Tyson. King goes and delivers Tyson. And to Tyson's credit, he comes out. Here's a little of that interview. Cut 47. Mill said he stopped the fight. You bit him. Was that a retaliation for the eye when you bit him in his ear? Regardless of what I did, he bit me for two fights. But you got to address it, Mike. Why I did, did you address it? No, I did address it. I addressed it in the ring. Why, why did you do that, though, Mike? I mean, was look that the proper me. response? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. I got to go home. My kids are going to be scared of me. Look at me, man. You were not scared. Yeah, even though he obviously could destroy you or anybody around and would take on a fighter like that, you were able to look him in the eye and ask the next question. How tough was that? Well, you know, you, you, when I look back at it, I wonder how I did that. You know, I, I, you know, how, <laughs> what was I thinking that he could have easily just, you know, uh, hauled off there? But I've never felt in peril with Mike. I've never felt in peril with any of the fighters that they were going to hit me. Um, I think you just have to do it. You're, 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 you're not thinking of that. You're thinking about what just happened. And, you know, you want, you're curious. I'm curious. Uh, the people that I work with, you don't want to let them down. And, and the audience, they paid, you know, whatever it was back then, 60 bucks, yep. to watch the fight. And the fight's ended now because this guy bit another guy's ear twice. So right. uh, <laughs> I think you just kind of go forward and, 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 and do it. And, you know, I, I've, I've always just been, you know, Glad I didn't screw that up because that would have been I would have I would have had a hard time living with myself if I had messed that up and it was one of these interviews which happens so so rarely uh, you know right even though you do thousands of them where you got it all right you didn't stumble you didn't think of another line you didn't think I didn't follow up there uh, and the production by Showtime was just fantastic and David Dinkins the producer he wasn't in my ear he trusted me to to get it done so. 
you know, it all worked well in, in that instance, even though it was a, a horrible moment for Mike in boxing. And then you again did all the interviews after, followed up, and you're still friends with Mike today when he went to prison. He'll write about it in the book, how he wrote you a letter, and it's just fascinating. So that's the story. You think you know Tyson, but you don't know from Jim Gray's perspective. Jim, another great moment. You're at the, your career's going fantastic. Everybody wants you in the dugout, on the sideline, ringside. And then you have an opportunity in a World Series game to, to interview anyone you want and the top players of all time, the all-century team. And the one that you're assigned to is Pete Rose. He's on, the first, he's on the field, baseball field, for the first time since his suspension. You had told me later, and you talk about it in the special, that you didn't know about all the drama and Ted Williams coming out in a wheelchair and had the, the music, and everyone was caught up in the moment. And when you had a chance to interview Pete Rose on the field, you thought to yourself, hey, I might get him to admit he bet on baseball, which we all know later he'd write a book about and admit he did. Here's the moment. Cut 52. Pete, congratulations. It was quite an ovation. Pete, let me ask you now. It seems as though that there is an opening. The American public is very forgiving. Are you willing to show contrition, admit that you bet on baseball, and make some sort of an apology? Not at all, Jim. Not at all. Um, I'm not going to admit something that didn't happen. I, I know you get tired of hearing me say that. but With the uh, overwhelming evidence. No, it is in that report. Why not make that uh, step with this opening? It's too much opening? of a festive night to worry about that. I mean, I, because I don't know what evidence you're talking about. Sign a paper uh, acknowledging the ban. Why did you sign it if you didn't agree to yeah, be but it for also, life? Yeah, it also says I can apply for reinstatement after one year. You have applied for reinstatement in 1997. Have you heard back from Commissioner Selig? Uh, no, but uh, uh, I hope to someday. And it went on, and afterwards, the backlash was pretty extensive. Not that the questions were wrong, but you even look back in and say, well, man, maybe I, that wasn't the right moment, right? Well, that's, that, that's what it was, you know, and, and you just alluded to it, Brian. Uh, you know, the melancholy feeling and the heartwarming feeling that everybody at home was having, you know, seeing Ted Williams and Sandy Colfax and uh, Frank Robinson and Stan Musial and all these great, great players and the ovation of Hank Aaron. And, and, you know, and the the triumph uh, and the beautiful uh, voice of Ben Scully and the trumpets and the cymbals. Well, I was in the uh, in the dugout uh, next to the Yankees in the Yankees dugout. And from where I was, you know, you couldn't – I wasn't watching television, which was a huge mistake because we're on television. So I wasn't getting that same feeling. It fell a little flat other than the ovations for Pete Rose, which was astounding and a, a huge ovation, and, and for Hank Aaron, who obviously was a, an, an Atlanta Brave. Other than that, you just didn't have the same feeling that people were having that warmth uh, at home from where I was. So then, you know, I come on, and we had all discussed it at NBC, everybody in the broadcast, uh, from Dick Ebersol, who was the chairman, who was just fantastic to me, uh, uh, to, you know, the producer, Sam Flood, and uh, Bob Costas, Joe Morgan, Bob Uecker. You know, we all had had a meeting, and, and this is what we thought we should be doing, and it just kind of careened out of control. But had I been watching better television and and when i was able to review it i saw how how right. at that time and that tone that, that was jarring so so jim is just this is what i love about the book the most is that you know these great moments and it's great to recount them but you show your human side you need to say hey i'm not perfect this went exceedingly well this is a relationship i'm proud of and this is an interview i wish i could have back then my pete rose became the good guy and everyone was targeting you. The Yankees blew you off, and you talk about that in the World Series where they chose not to speak to you afterwards. And uh, that's going to be in the special. Also in the special, real quick, Jim, you talked to Pete Rose for the first time in 21 years about that moment. Correct. And we had uh, not uh, obviously done an interview before. I, I used to do the Phillies pregame show, and I was a regular guest on Pete's radio show when he had it. So uh, we've probably done somewhere between 
70 to 100 interviews over the course of the years. And after 21 years, so we got together a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas for the special uh, on Sunday night on Fox News, uh, which you were so kind enough to uh, to host. And uh, it's a really interesting interview, and and I'm I'm glad that Pete did it. It was good for uh, me to sit down with him, and we had a great conversation. And, and you're going to see uh, you're going to see it on Sunday night at 10 o'clock Eastern. But uh, I think that people will uh, really. Uh, really have interest in what Pete has to say about where his life is now and, and about that interview. Yep, you break some news as usual. Uh, Jim Gray, the book is called Talking to Ghosts. Listen, everyone's tired of politics. Take a break. <laughs> Listen to this. Jim, you also talk about your uh, interaction with the presidents. There's so much to get to. I'd love to have you back again to continue all the books out. Jim Gray, thanks so much. Brian, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the special, and I appreciate you, and thanks for the time. You got it. Back in a moment. Every big-name opinion maker eventually makes their way to our microphones because Brian asks the tough questions, and even some easy ones. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Chad, tell us about that pitch. Uh, I, I can't do it. You know, as a team, we kind of decided that, you know, we because uh, of what happened with Pete, we're, we're not going to talk out here on the field. I do want to say that was for you, though, Grandma. Thanks. Well, Chad, you don't want to talk about the home run? All right, Bob. Back upstairs to you. So here he is in the World Series the day after the, all the, the game in which he had the Pete Rose interview. All the Yankees are mad at him. They tell him to get out of the dugout. And Chad Curtis, a, a not well-known Yankee, has a game-winning hit in the World Series. He stood there through the commercial just to blow Jim Gray off on television. That, that's bold. That's nuts. And then the Yankees don't want to talk to him at all. Dick Ebersole tries to convince him they're not going to talk to him. And then he's at night. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He thinks his career might be over. And then George Steinbrenner knocks on his door. And he gets the door. And he's like, I just want to tell you, Jim. Uh, we are sorry. I am sorry what happened. The Yankees will talk to you, and you will hand out the trophy. If, you, if we win, we're lucky enough to win, you will you'll hand out the trophy and do the interviews at the World Series. You got my word on that. So what do you want to say about Steinbrenner, uh, who is the Donald Trump of sports owners, he stood up for him there. Isn't that great? That's an incredible story. Yeah. The name of the book is called Talking to Goats, and the special with Jim Gray is on Fox Nation. You will love it. Would you, sweetheart? Sweetheart. Be reasonable. After all, we're married. Consider that a divorce. Uh, that is Total Recall. That is a relationship cut that we've been searching for. Uh, and Pete and Allison came up with that. Good job. We have another relationship cut, too, right? When Harry Met Sally. I have not seen that movie in about 20 years, but you have one that also applies. Why am I bringing up relationships? Because almost everyone can relate to them, whether you're in one or uh, out of one or about to get in one or about to get out of one. Listen to these numbers. Since the pandemic started, people looking for divorce is up 34% year to year. 31% of couples admitted lockdown has caused irreparable damage to their relationships. Interest 
interest in separation during quarantine, that's from April till today, increased 57%, which is a perfect entree to our next guest. It's my privilege to bring in John and Catherine Gordon. They co-authored a great new book out. It's called Relationship Grit, How to Get Through These Times. Uh, They are with us right now, and the grit stands for something, G for God, R for Resolve, I for Invest, and T together. John and Catherine, welcome. Oh, thanks for having us. Hey, Brian. Now, let me ask something. Did you know, did you write this knowing that a pandemic was coming at some point? We actually wrote this before the pandemic. <laughs> we had no idea this was happening. But obviously, it's very timely that it would come out right now with so many people struggling through their relationships and, and through their finances during this time. Catherine, the thing is, and you stopped me. I don't know if you can relate to this directly, but you certainly do it indirectly. Everyone's lifestyles change, whether you're working from home or lose your job, whether your kids are usually in school and now they're home. How does that change the dynamic of a relationship suddenly, Uh, abruptly? Well, I mean, you're with each other 24-7, so you're you're having to learn how to get along. And it's funny, we have a running joke. John always says, how do you like being married to me? And I always say, before or after the pandemic. So, (laughs) And the answer is? (laughs) it's still good it's still good we use the principles in the book so john you're a a motivational guy motivational speaker and very successful writer it's not new for you to release a book but this is about you guys too and you want people to learn from it first off how did you get the acronym grit it came to us in the kitchen we were talking about this book we were going to write together and it just came we knew that You had to make God the center of your relationship. You had to resolve to stay together. You had to invest in the marriage. You have to invest in the relationship. Don't just consume from it. You have to invest in it, and you have to do it together. If one person wants it but the other doesn't, it's not going to work. So we knew you had to have grit in a marriage. You had to have grit to stay together, and then the acronym just came to us. Has the relationship always been smooth sailing, Catherine? Oh, no. As you'll read in the book, I mean, we've 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 gone through a lot, Um, you know, and we were on the verge of divorce. I I had kicked him out and told him I'd had enough of his negativity. And uh, from there, we've kind of worked our way back. We had some infidelity and some other things that were weaved in there. And, you know, I mean, that's the whole thing. If we can stay together Anyone can do it. And how did you do it, John? I know the grit. I know the acronym. I I get it. But tell me how you did it. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard to write this book because I had to share all my flaws, all my mistakes, right? People see me as a writer and speaker now. They see my success. But I had to share where I started and how I changed. And when Catherine gave me that ultimatum, I looked at myself, and I, I didn't like myself. I wanted to be a more positive person. I wanted to be a better person. So I started to work on being positive. I started to be a better husband. And honestly, my faith changed me as well. I came to faith in, in 2006. And that was a huge part of my journey to become a more positive person. So I would say that was the number one thing. But I also learned how to serve my wife. Like it wasn't about me. I had to start serving her and my kids. And that really changed. Once I changed the mindset from being a narcissist, which I was, to how can I make the team around me better? Mm -hmm. Catherine, what if you like being a narcissist? Because I enjoy it. I mean, is that a, do I have to change? <laughs> well, you need to ask your wife that. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, you're probably not the right person? Okay. No. <laughs> but, 
So, so you, in other words, but let me ask you, but relationships are always changing, right? When you first met, you're different, you're younger for the very least. Usually people, a lot of times people had kids, get a bigger house, more financial responsibility. You do other things, jobs, careers change. How do relationships evolve rather than end? Uh, I think you evolve by finding the things that you like to do together, by making sure that you're communicating, connecting, committing, and caring. We talk about the four C's in the book. You got to stay communicating in the relationship because then you will go further and further apart. You have to make sure you're taking the time to connect. Catherine loves to talk about that in the book on ways to connect. And then you have to be committed to each other and, and do things to sacrifice for each other, like being a narcissist, right? It's, it's not about you. It's about what is the other person want? What do they need? How can I serve them and sacrifice for them? It's like these little moments where we make time for each other. That's what actually makes a successful marriage, all the research shows. And then also just showing that you care. Like when, when Catherine needs something, if I'm too busy for her, it, it says I don't care. But if I make the time, it lets her know I care. Right. And uh, Catherine, is anything he said true? It's all true. <laughs> okay. It's all true. I thought so. I just wanted to trick you. Newly, <laughs> listen to this stat. You probably don't know this. We asked it for our brain room. It says, newlyweds took the pandemic the hardest. 20% of couples who sought divorce were married within the last five months or less compared to 11% in 2019. Early on, that's a big test. So when things get turbulent, if you're from a divorced family, you might be quick to bail. Hey, what's wrong? Yeah, my family did it. My brother did it. If you're used to it, it becomes too natural. Is, is the easy way out the right way out? You know, I think what that boils down to is fear. Well, you know, when we're in these kind of situations, it boils down to fear. Can I provide for us? Am I going to keep my job? And so that's where it's important for couples to be vulnerable with each other. Share your fears. Share what you're struggling with. Listen to each other. And that goes back to which is the first um, or the second C, which is connect. And, Brian, it's during those times where the early part where it's so easy to walk away, right? You're not really bonded. You're not really connected. You haven't really made a commitment. And we see so many couples when they're young, when it's hard, they walk away. And that's why we wrote this. We want to say stay together because Catherine and I really have a great marriage now. It wasn't great in the beginning. But it is really great now. And you get all the joys and the benefits and the intimacy of a great relationship when you decide to stick stick it out. And what about how do you factor in the kids part and keep the relationship going? Well, I'm the product of a, a divorced family, and so so I, I do think it's important to make sure that you're investing in each other first. Like the marriage has to come first. You have to be together and be a strong team together to then work on your kids. Like your kids are your projects, and you are the team that have to work on your kids. So it starts with you first having a strong foundation. What this time has realized is do you have a strong foundation or not? And if you had a crack in the foundation before COVID, I really believe it became a canyon during COVID. And so it's about healing the cracks that exist. Catherine, would you say that sometimes uh, people should seek professional help, get an outside opinion? Yeah, absolutely, because not everybody, I mean, we're not all good communicators. Normally there's one of you in the relationship that is better than the other, but sometimes neither of you are. And that's why I always say, you know, reach out, get some professional help. It'll go a long way. We did early on. Yeah. And and you have to go pick uh, pick somebody that's going to be equal. You don't want to be like, you know, I thought about it. John's 100% right. then he's paying the bill number one number two is to keep in mind i thankfully we didn't have to go through it uh but 
Divorce isn't easy. You may think you're taking the easy way out. I've never heard someone say, wow, I want divorced. It really went well. Everybody I know, it's a traumatic event to end a marriage. It's, it's almost easier to make the marriage work. Such a great point, Brian. It is, it's easier if you stick it out, but sometimes it's a lot harder to actually do the work to make it successful. I think it's easy to walk away, but it's actually harder in the long run. It's harder to do it, but then it's better in the long run when you stick it out. But you're right. Divorce is not good for, for anyone, and no one really wants to. Now, we do say in the book that not everyone is meant to stay together. If you're dealing with abuse, if you're dealing with certain situations, maybe you are meant to be apart. But you should do everything possible to work it out. So don't give up before trying everything possible to work it out. And, Catherine, I'm going to start. I'm going to end where we started. You said before or after the pandemic, and you're very funny. I've met you before. I know how, what a great wit you have. But what changes about a relationship when you are in an in, in, uh, indescribable situation of being with each other constantly? It could be really rewarding, but more importantly, it could be it's almost a brand new relationship. Uh, you're home at 12. You're home all day. You're on the laptop. Uh, you can't really go to restaurants. You can't, you know, in the beginning, and depending on where people are listening to us around the country, maybe you still can't go to restaurants. You can't go to the gym. So you're with each other constantly. At the very least, everything changed. How do we address the change? Um, again, it goes back to communicating. And one of the things that John and I did was we found things that we could do together, and then we try to give each other the space, even within our home, you know, John working out of the home now also, to do what he needs to do. So it's about keep, you know, keeping separate but staying together. If that makes sense. And you also talk about how things evolve. Kids get older. They have different needs. Some have need to be financed in college. Some need to be a little help to get on with their careers. But things change with you. You went back and you reignited your career in real estate. You, you produce movies. You always you, you mentor people. So be cognizant. Things aren't going to naturally happen. you got to take action, right? You do have to take action. And, you know, the thing about this book that we say, you know, and with going back to marriages and, and heading for divorce, look, if you don't do the work this time, you'll have to do it in your next relationship. So take the time. Take the time to work on your marriage. And right now, with us all being home, it's even harder. So, so it's, it's got to be a priority. You've got to make your relationship a priority. And it's about making sure you invest in yourself as well. Like you were saying, Brian, like Catherine really started investing in herself. During this time, she was doing her own thing. I was doing my own thing. So we were, even though we are in the same space, we were also doing our own things. And then we'd come together. But most arguments occur within the first 20 minutes that a spouse or a partner would walk in the door. So it's also important to have that buffer zone where you give each other space to be yourself, get centered yourself, and then come into the relationship to be your best for each other. I never heard that before. The first 20 minutes when you walk in the door, that's the mo- that's the time in which you either hit it off or fight it out? Yep. The most fights occurred during that time. So that's why we always say, like, when you come in the door, <laughs> you know, change your clothes, get your own space, take some deep breaths, whatever you have to do to, to be your best for the other person in that time. Right. And Brian, for yeah. us, I, I knew with John, he had to eat. He was a bear <laughs> if he didn't eat. 
So you just would stay away until you heard the refrigerator unsuction. <laughs> I'd hand him a plate of food. <laughs> uh, uh, Eat this, then talk to me. Yeah. Right. Hey, instead of talking about other things you can't control, like politics and elections and Supreme Court justice seats, what about something you can't control? And that's your relationship. This is a great book to really help people out at a granular level. Uh, relationship grit and the G-R-I-T stands for God Resolve Invest uh, Together. Guys, thanks so much. I think you helped a lot of people just now. Thanks, Brian. And we also, just so you know, we have a free action plan. If they go to relationshipgritbook.com, there's a free action plan they can use. All right. We want want to help people, and we appreciate you doing that, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And we are going to be so ready for the next pandemic. Thanks to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. So listen, I know a lot of you are looking forward to the vaccine. We all are. But sadly, we're going to need relationship grit again. Go out and pick it up and get it on Amazon or all your local bookstores, especially if you're in the uh, Florida area. It's called Relationship Grit, and we could all benefit from it. And because there's some tension and stress, just know it's natural. Working through it takes effort. When we come back, there's more to know. A whole lot to be thankful for. Family, friends, and the best of Brian Kilmeade. Happy Thanksgiving from the Brian Kilmeade Show. Helen comes home from work and she says, I don't know if I want to be married anymore. Like it's the institution, you know, like it's nothing personal, just something she's been thinking about in a casual way. I'm calm. I say, why don't we take some time to think about it? You know, don't rush into anything. Yeah, right. Next day, she says she's thought about it, and she wants a trial separation. She just wants to try it, she says, but we can still date. Like, this is supposed to cushion the blow. I mean, I got married so I can stop dating. So I don't see where we can still date as any big incentive, since the last thing you want to do is date your wife, who's supposed to love you. Which is what I'm saying to her when it occurs to me that maybe she doesn't. So I say to her, don't you love me anymore? You know what she says? I don't know if I've ever loved you. <laughs> That's not a great conversation, right? Uh, that was from Harry Met Sally, Bill Crystal, who was talking to? Meg Ryan. Oh, Meg Ryan, who married e- John, Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp, I think, either that they're dating. I'll take your word, but I can't believe you forgot everything about that movie. I did. Uh, Meg Ryan, who was what one, you know, she was the hottest actress in the country at one point. She was amazing. Right. Uh, I think a few things happened. We're not really sure why, but I think it's evident. But uh, I will say, I will say this: that is that would have been perfect for the segment, but it's even better now because we just talked about relationships. People might be able to relate to that more than they can what they see on television every night. Well, I agree because they're living their relationships every day. What you see on right. television, you're not actually living. You're just getting annoyed about it. Isn't that true? Isn't that a point? You tell me if I'm wrong here. There's a point where you you can be too honest in a relationship. And I don't think there's any reason to say, I don't think I've ever loved you. Like that will never, you know, there's honesty and there's honesty. Yeah, well, I. I, I changed. It's me. <laughs> right? That's that was just cruel, right? To say it like that. Yeah. I'm overly honest, so I think that's where we might disagree. You might say you actually might say that. I don't think I. Well, I hopefully I'm never in that position, right? But um, or I'm not obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was mean. I feel like there would be a better way to say that. And actually, Pete just corrected me. He wasn't talking to Meg Ryan. He was talking to Bruno Kirby at the Giants game. Right. Pete oh, is that's our right. Expert. That is excellent. He probably knows it because Pete's a Giants fan. Let's find out if there's even more to know. More to know. Talk about relationship. Uh, we know New England Patriots owner uh, Robert Kraft 
wife passed away a long time ago, and he decided in between Super Bowl weeks, I think it was, or right after, uh, to do something in a massage parlor, and he was prosecuted as if he was... Uh, Although the worst thing that ever happened to the country, I thought they went way overboard. And I think somebody else agrees. They cleared him of charges in that massage parlor sex case. They're not going to be able to use any of the tapes and not embarrass him. I'm biased. I think he's a great guy, an unbelievable person, incredible businessman. What he's done with the Patriots and the rest of his life, I think he had a transgression. But that was a massage parlor. I think the two. You don't have to comment. No, but I think he can be a great person, all of those, and I think he can also make a mistake and have redemption for it. Next, Senator Dianne Feinstein's husband named, and get this, the UC Berkeley admission scandal. He's knee deep in this stuff. I hope it comes out more. It's crazy. Right. And they're also worried about this is not on my list. Dianne Feinstein might not be up to tough questioning. Isn't that unbelievable? And congratulations, us. Fox News Media has earned a designation as a 2020 Great Place to Work certified company. So we won this competition. And would you agree, even in this crazy environment, don't you agree this is a great place to work? It is. I will say one of the highlights, right, was being very family friendly and good benefits, being able to, you know, take time off to be with your family, which... Given the fact they just had twins, I've appreciated thoroughly. Wow, that's a, that's a very good point. And that came from the heart, and I believe everybody was listening. Great job, Allison. Hey, go to BrianKillMeatShow.com. If you ever have to leave your local affiliate, you can listen uh, live, listen in anytime. And if you want any of my books signed, I worked at some of my local bookstore where if you need to personalize, just go to BrianKillMe.com. The one that's hot now is Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, now out on paperback. We got Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, Andrew Jackson, George Washington Spies. Can't go wrong. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.